Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Before we begin today's interview, it's time for our five-minute segment where we have a quick check-in with some of our favorite writers. And now, five minutes with Brandon T. Snyder. Brandon. How's hey. It, how's it going? So, you know, a lot of people work every day of the week, and I find myself doing that often. And today I've been working on a book for younger readers. That is the story of a very famous character in, in popular culture for a series that is about various famous characters in popular culture. But you can't um, tell us. You can't. Uh, I don't. I can't really details. talk about it yet. It, it's, okay. it's not. It's not coming out for like another year and a half, perhaps. I think it's, oh, wow. it's very ahead of schedule. But anyway, but the the stress that I'm encountering today is trying to encapsulate and distill the 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 details of this character's existence in this very detailed and rich world. And distill all of that down for an eight-year-old, because that is like the the age group. So, because of my specific type of brain, having all those details can be overwhelming. That it's hard for me to search through and be like, what are the the details about this character and about these situations that that are cool for an eight-year-old? And how do I present them, you know, uh, fun and and easy? It's just like an overwhelming amount because I'm like, this world is so rich. There's aliens and creatures and names of things that I'm like, you know, I have to explain so much. So that's my, that's the challenge that I'm having today. So do you start by writing it for adults first and then like kind of dial it back? Is that worth the time or? Uh, Well, kind of, you know, the outline for this particular project had to be very specific so that my editor felt comfortable giving it to the licensor who um, we sort of work to make happy. You know, we want the licensor's approval, but we we want them to be like, okay, this is exactly what we thought this was going to be. And, you know, the feedback on the outline was very scant. So they seemed to be happy with what I did. But then once I sit down to actually do the writing, it becomes a different beast because I'm also working within the constraint. I feel, you know, working within the constraints of the format, knowing that I have X amount of space and time to get something described and its importance to the galaxy done. You know, it's like, so I, and the way that I break it up, I mean, my mind can be very scattered working on things like this. So I've got references everywhere from lots of different places. And because there's a bibliography in this book, I also have to just run a really tight ship. I can't find a detail somewhere and not have the backup. So it's like writing a uh, a paper, a college paper, which wasn't always my favorite thing. So where does all this information live? Is it in like various different Word docs? Are you writing things down physically? I'm just trying to imagine yes. you organizing so, it all. So there's like stuff that I have printed so that I can flip through and look at in that way. There are Word docs, there are Gmail drafts. Um, when I'm working on something, so, so I break the chapters up into their own documents so I can just isolate the information. And then when I put it all together, then I can sort of link it together. So, um, a lot of the links are just at the bottom of the document, you know? So anyway, so I have the outline it's approved. Then I break it up each chapter into separate docs. And then I put the references in those docs and then I start writing I might start writing on that document. I might start writing elsewhere. Things come to me and, and, and phrasing comes to me at different places. One of the things that I also do that's sort of convoluted is, but it helps me get into the world is if I have to watch a movie or some sort of reference, I'll just take notes throughout the movie. Interesting. Okay. And then I will put those notes into a document. So I have 12 pages of um, written notes based on watch, having watched three films that this character appears in. And some of these notes are helpful. Some of them are not. So I have to sort of sift through the web of my mind. What are the notes like? They're like, these are the habits of the character. This is how the character talks. Like, what do you... Yes. Okay. It's basically like, you know, the, the movies are not about this character. And this character isn't given as much, as, as, as important as they are to the mythos. They are not necessarily given all that much in some of the films. So I have to just focus on their specific role and really go in on all the things that make that character special in this role in this world. And 
you know, sometimes, sometimes it's easy because you're like, oh, well, yeah, that, that's a huge moment to the whole universe. But getting there can be difficult when there's not exactly uh, the buildup that there needs to be. You know, one of the things, too, with nostalgia and the iconography of certain characters is you go like, oh, my God, I love that character. That's my favorite. Because when you're younger, you see these movies or you see whatever, you just you respond to those characters. But when you peel it away to try to find the core and the marrow, it's not necessarily the same way that you remember it. Because when you're a kid and you're watching a movie, you're like, yay, it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be fun. Yeah. So where are you now with this current project? Like when you sit down and you look at the screen right now, what's going through your mind? Like, how are you going to like finish this thing? Well, today, what I, one of the things I wanted to focus on was the sidebars. So each chapter will have sidebars that talk about specific things that I can't discuss in the text. So if I throw out a reference that is important to the text, but instead of going into it within the chapter itself, we'll do a sidebar to say, oh, by the way, this is that thing. So I was like, let me go through all of those because a lot of those is, is world building stuff and finding ways to describe very complex systems and complex things um, and distilling those down to the core and, uh, you know, something that an eight-year-old won't be like, what? And what do you need today to really make this day a productive day? Are you ready? Or is there something that like you're like missing and you're like, I need this? As I sip from my cold brew coffee um you know what i don't know like what i need what i need i guess i mean i'm i'm a week away from a deadline okay which i feel i have i I theoretically have plenty of time it's it's just hard for me to get distance and clarity so what i so i'm like let me just work on it let me just do all this stuff let me get things out then i can leave it alone so i'm hoping to get through a, a, a chunk of work today leave it alone and then come back to it in a day or two Tomorrow I would work on another wing of the book and then come back to those things. And then I need to be able to look at the entire thing. And when I'm working on it piecemeal, I don't have that eye. So I want to be able to get as much done and then come back to it when it is a fuller document and go, all right, how have I built this? Is there a payoff? Have I explained everything appropriately? It's, it's difficult for me to get that sort of distance and clarity. So I'm just hoping to plow through today. So what I would like to, I mean, what I need, um, time uh, <laughs> and clear mind also distractions are real so yeah i get a text i get an email i get something well we're distracting you right now technically it's true but i'm i'm happy to do that but hopefully this will lead to the clairvoyance and i should also mention that there is a project that i'm working on an audiobook oh. for, for younger listeners as well and i'm finding difficult for me to go from the experience of working on that which is total creative freedom to then work on this other thing which has very specific boundaries um and i knew that it would be a challenge but i didn't realize it would be so much of a challenge you know in one instance with the audiobook i'm like i'm you know there's nothing for me outside of just sort of the format of an audiobook i don't have constraints so it's like do whatever you want yeah we you know everything has been met with energy positive energy and and everyone's excited about it because it's sort of a writer's group thing that that audible has created and we each have our own project and it's great and i feel like creatively fulfilled and then to go to this other project where it's like these this is exactly what you have to do you don't there's no room to move it's like that's sort of difficult and once this project and once the thing that i'm working on today once i turn in the first draft i will probably i'll be in a better place to then turn my creative attention to the other thing as sort of a reward but then I have another one of these types of books that will be coming down the pike because I agreed to do two. So I will have to return to perhaps some stress. But hopefully I will have, you know, I often learn that my brain can be its own special prison. So is it as dramatic as I'm explaining it? Perhaps <laughs> not. Uh, you know, my editor could be like, it's fine you know, we'll, we'll work with this and we'll change this. And, you know, yeah, there'll be changes to make and and adjustments. But in my brain, I'm like, I'm failing right now. But I'm also, uh, you know, I'm a professional. So I don't think that I'm as failing as much as I think I am, or I wouldn't perhaps have a job like this. So well, we think you're doing just great. 
Brandon. Oh, stop it. <laughs> and I think that's our time. So good luck with everything. Maybe take a walk around Astoria. Nice little trek around the block, you know, pick up a nice cup of coffee, you know. Oh, maybe a chocolate chip cookie from Chip. <laughs> exactly. That's been known, proven to help. I so. like the way you think. All right. Well, thank you again. And until the next update, good luck. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. Bye, Brandon. And now, back to the show. All right. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is David Hayter. David is the director of Wolves and the writer of the films X-Men, X2, and Watchmen, among others. And he's also just finished writing the first season of Warrior Nun coming out on Netflix. Uh, David, how's it going, man? Uh, it's going very, very well now that I'm here. Tell us, I always say my first question is where you are in the world. We've had a lot of LA-based guests lately. I assume you're also based in LA. I am. I'm a, I'm a creature of Hollywood, unfortunately. And uh, being in L.A., were you there before or did you move there to be a writer? Obviously, being in L.A. as a writer is important. No, I moved here uh, when I was 20 uh, from Toronto, Canada to be an actor. And I had always loved writing and I'd been writing stories and things since I was 12 years old. But I never had any concept of how to get work doing that. So. I always loved it. I, I kept studying the books after I, the screenwriting books after I arrived in town, but really never actively pursued it until the opportunity sort of fell into my lap and, and, uh, and I became a writer. How much would you say reading those screenwriting books has affected your career? Would you say that's integral or would you say a lot of it has just been learning on your own? No, they were definitely integral, um, I, because, especially because I wasn't actively pursuing it. I, I sort of got into film production. And then when I was discussing revisions to a screenplay, uh, I had the opportunity to discuss revisions to a screenplay. And I knew what I was talking about, basically because of the books. And so that gave me a, a little bit of credibility, a little bit of jargon that allowed me to, uh, to write my first um, project. You know, I briefly described who you are. You're a director and a screenwriter. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Is it both? Oh, it's a it's a it's a bizarre <laughs> nonsense. I I, uh, I you know I'm also I'm very well known as a voice actor. I primarily say I'm a screenwriter when I you know go across the country or I, I go to another country and it says what's your profession. I say screenwriter. That's sort of the basis of everything, but I'm also, I'm a producer, I'm a director, I remain an actor, I'm a terrible guitarist, uh, you know, there's so many facets, really. And you just finished uh, writing the first season of Warrior Nun. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? What we can yeah. expect. To... Yeah, I don't want to uh, give the wrong impression. It was it, I was a, a co-writer on that show. It was my first experience in a writer's room uh, for television which was very, very cool. Um, the, the showrunner, uh, Simon Barry, brought me aboard to, to sort of do an apprentice showrunnership uh, with me, you know, to help me shore up my, my various television projects I'm pitching. So yeah, I did six months in the writer's room. We broke 10 episodes. I wrote uh, one and co-wrote another. And the production is now in Malaga, Spain, about to start shooting in another uh, week and a half, two weeks. And hopefully we'll see it on Netflix um, towards the end of the year, towards the end of 2019. So as far as, you know, this episode and kind of what we usually talk about, we usually frame our episodes around themes. Um, we've had a few screenwriters, but we've never talked specifically about the screenwriting process. So I'd love to get your input, maybe have you school us on the art of writing a screenplay. Does that sound cool? Yeah, very cool. Awesome. So let's dive right into that. Tell us about the start of a project. You mentioned before we started that uh, X-Men, as an example, uh, you were involved early on in the process. Where does a screenwriter usually get involved in the process? X-Men is an established IP. Did someone contact you and say, hey, we want to turn this comic book into a movie? Where did you get kind of looped in? Uh, well, the X-Men situation was very unusual. Um, so I was not in... Uh, at the very beginning, well, I was in at the very beginning of the team that eventually made the movie, but there had been other screenplays uh, written, uh, you know, from some amazing writers. And then I was brought in and I began revising what was there from 
about three or four months before we started shooting. You know, but typically the way a project starts, so let's say, I, so I was brought in to, um, to write the Black Widow movie back in the day in 2004, which didn't get made at the time, but now it looks like it's, it's getting made. So the way something like that begins is they say, okay, we've got, uh, you know, we want to do the Black Widow. So I do a bunch of research on the character, if I don't already know it, and, you know, read all the comic books and not all the comic books, but sort of the salient stories that really stand out to the fans. I start to pull elements that I think will be cinematic and will set up the character. If it's an origin story like Black Widow or, or X-Men uh, was, then I dig into who each character is and try to figure out a proper arc for them uh, that is illustrative of the character but takes the audience in in a way that's easy to understand uh, if, if they've never seen a character like that before. X-Men yeah. was very much like that because there were 11 superpowered main characters, which was kind of unheard of at the time. And there was great concern with the studio and the filmmakers that we needed to make this world understandable and each person an individual character that, that was very clear. So that, that was the big goal there. It was definitely ahead of its time, especially in today's superhero movie world. Um, yes. So as far as getting involved in that, who are you working with? Who's giving you that input, that feedback? Is that like an executive producer? Is there someone from the studio that's saying, oh, we want it to take place between here and here and giving you notes? And is, is Marvel involved? Who are those core players who are involved? Well, on Black Widow, it was, uh, yeah, it was Marvel. It was Kevin Feige and Avi Arad. And uh, at the time, it was set up at, at Lionsgate. So the studio uh, was, um, you know, letting us know what they wanted out of the film. And we did not have a director attached. Uh, for uh, X-Men, it was primarily, you know, we had our producers, Lawrence Schuller Donner, Ralph Winter, uh, Marvel, um, and Fox was the studio, but that one had uh, the director, Brian Singer, was already attached. So a lot of the and because there were already scripts that existed, I mean, the, the primary creative direction came from Brian. And then as far as writing for X-Men specifically, did you grow up reading comic books? Was this a project? Yep. And did you specifically read X-Men? Or was this like, oh, my God, I get to write an X-Men movie? Yeah, that's kind of how I ended up on the show was I had been obsessed with the X-Men comic books um, back in the early to late 80s. And it was my knowledge of the characters that allowed me to step into that position, which was very, very fortunate. And how did they find you specifically? Was this submitted through an agent? Did you know someone? What was like that connection? You know, I've told this story many times, and I apologize to anybody who's heard it before, but I was answering the phones on the production. Oh, wow. And but I knew the director and he was complaining to me about the script and things he wanted to accomplish with the script and knowing the characters and having read, you know, the Sid Fields screenwriting books and, and Robert McKee and all of those. I suggested a scene and he said, yeah, good, go write that for me. And so he started having me uh, do rewrites on the script. And it was a very strange series of events. But I ended up revising the script for the next 13 months, went up to Canada for the production. We made the movie and I ended up getting sole credit on the film, which is unheard of. And then suddenly I was a screenwriter. And I would imagine that was life-changing for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. It's amazing. So. We've heard a lot of interesting origin stories, so to speak, on this podcast, but I haven't heard that one before, which is pretty crazy. I think it's, I mean, it's one of the most outrageous Hollywood you know, rags to riches stories I've ever heard. And to be the subject of it was quite bizarre and, and uh, disorienting. Do you ever wonder, you know, what if that day you didn't show up or what if one little thing changed what happened? Maybe you wouldn't have had that conversation and never gotten that opportunity where you'd be? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I had auditioned uh, to play the lead in a movie called The Doom Generation not too long before that. And I was very close to getting it. And I didn't get it. And I was so bummed. And then when I ended up writing X-Men, I was like, Oh, thank God, I didn't get that movie, <laughs> you know, because I never would have been there. And wow. so any number of things could have happened. It was literally 
well, it wasn't literally. It was it was like being hit by lightning, but uh, but better in yeah, a number of ways. I imagine so. And now you're here and you're uh, talking to us about your process, which is what we'll yeah. kind of dive into. Tell us about the outline process. Are, are you a proponent of working on an outline prior to obviously writing out your script itself? Or are you... Yeah, very much. Uh, I like to... I'm a big believer in structure. And that's something I, I very much got from the screenwriting books. And I'm also a believer in, in breaking structure if you already have a mastery of it to begin with. So, you know, like Pulp Fiction, which is, which is presented in a, in a very fractured three-part, you know, three-movie structure. But if you unravel it all, you can tell that it's written by a master screenwriter who understands what structure is to begin with. I believe that I want to take myself through the beats of the movie and figure out the course of the opening, the first act, the turn into the second act, the turn at the middle of the second act, and then the turn into three, and to to beat out each of those elements until I feel like I've got something that feels fresh, that I have cinematic opportunities all the way through, and essentially, and this is also how you get a film made. If you're pitching it from the ground up to a studio, I typically start with five-page outline, I'll pitch that and then we flesh it out to an eight page to 14 15 pages and then usually by the time i've got to 20 pages of outline it's ready to go to uh, the first draft and then you start the screenplay itself uh you mentioned mckee and sid field from your experiences how similar in their processes is it to actually sitting down and writing a screenplay would you say that it's pretty one for one or would you say that you kind of took that as inspiration and kind of have your own process yeah, i think i have my own process i just have that skeleton of structure you know i also believe in save the cat blake snyder save the cat that's a very clear illustration of classic movie structure i'm just writing scenes and sequences in the way that i i love them but i always have that skeleton of structure in the back of my head and kind of slot in story elements and turns where I feel they should go according to that structure. And then, you know, if I if I want to make it into a five-act structure or do anything strange with it, then then I start to mess with those timelines and 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 move them around, but uh but typically that's how I start. So, you know, McKee was was more about the basics of storytelling and character, and so those are just good lessons to have in in mind as well, but it's less about the process for me than say, Sid Field or, or say, The Cat. Random question. Uh, I believe that the, the formatting of a screenplay is Courier 12. Correct. Do you write in that or do you convert it over later? And I imagine that no, would change No, I do write your... in that. I, you do? I, I okay. want it to look like a screenplay from the beginning. You know, some outlines I'll do in um, Microsoft Word because sometimes I can put in pictures or illustrations or, or things that, that I think will make it more interesting for, say, a studio executive to read. But when I write a script, I love the fact that it's still in courier draft because it looks like the old typewritten scripts. It looks like right. a script written by Alfred Hitchcock, you know, back in the day. It may not read as well, but uh, but at least it gives you that screenplay feel. I have a tattoo on my arm of my family motto, uh, which is via V, and it's uh, done in courier uh, draft font. You know, obviously, you mentioned that the original scripts were typed in that way. Do you think it's circumstantial that there's that one page per minute? I believe that's the the ratio: one page per minute, one yeah. hundred twenty pages for hundred and twenty minutes. Is that accidental that it just happens to be like that? Well, I don't think it was done on purpose. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it's well, I think it's accidental. I think it's just the amount of time it takes to speak dialogue at an average rate. Uh, versus the amount of time it takes to shoot action vis-a-vis how, how long it's been written on the page. So, um, and it just tends to work out that way. Now, if you're Aaron Sorkin and your dialogue is just rapid fire and it's moving and moving and moving, your scripts will be longer. As far as I understand it, the West Wing teleplays were, you know, in the in the 70 to 75 page range, which if you know, if anybody else turned that into a network, they'd say, "Well, this is ridiculous. This, this is never going to fit." 
but Sorkin knows the dialogues are going to be going so fast that we're going to get through this scene in 30 seconds where another scene would take a minute. Right? So yeah, for the average length of time it takes to, uh, to, to shoot a dialogue scene or, or an action scene. And, and I think it takes longer for dialogue on the page and shorter for action. I believe that's the, the formula. And it somehow it typically ends up uh, evening out at about a minute per page. What do your descriptions look like in your scripts? Obviously, they're not necessarily always seen by the public. They're usually used for, you know, yeah. internally. Do you write them with very flowery, descriptive language, or are yours more kind of straightforward? Not flowery language. I, I don't know that that is, you know, represents good writing. You know, you never want to be too showy in your prose in a novel, for example. You can if that's your style, but a lot of times it just comes off as, ooh, look at me, I have this you know, superlative vocabulary and I'm going to impress you with all these outrageous words. You know, that just smacks of inexperienced writing. And because the public's not going to read it, you know, a screenplay is very different from a novel or a short story or something. You know, people aren't really going to see what's, what's happening. So if I am emotive in the writing, it's to indicate to the actor where the character is. So they have some sort of emotion to jump off of. If, if, if some moment is particularly painful or revelatory or emotionally impactful for a character, I will try to put that in the prose of the action lines in a way that inspires the actor to find something there. And then they, you know, they, they take over from there. As far as visuals go, um, I heard a very, well, it was Tom Siegel who uh, shot, the DP who shot X-Men among, you know, tons of other amazing movies. And he said to me, I look at every new verb as a new shot, which I thought was pretty interesting. So I kind of go by that rule that if I'm describing the visuals of anything, I try to describe it in terms of shots, not necessarily saying Oh, it's a, you know, it's a long lens dolly shot that's going to pick up and find this. But I might say we follow a man across the street, you know, at the curb of the sidewalk. He steps up and he hears something and he turns around and there's a look on his face that says, you know, what was that? So in that description, you kind of get a sense of a wide shot of a guy crossing the street, maybe see an insert of his foot stepping up on the curb. And then obviously you're going to punch in on his face for his expression. So I try to indicate the scene as I see it on the page. And then again, the DP, the director, the actors will all work to, to, to realize that same thing in, in whatever shots they use. Because it's taboo to actually put actual yeah, well, camera direction the, and all that kind of thing. Well, there was a discussion on Twitter, um, on film Twitter, the other day between some of the big directors that I follow, Chris McQuarrie and... James Mangold and Scott Derrickson, people like that. And, and, you know, they were saying they don't mind if some, if a screenwriter writes in direction, I think some directors get upset, but I do it sometimes I'll say, you know, angle on this or push in on this to indicate character, emotion, revelation, whatever. But you have to understand the director may not do that. They may not push in. They may, you know, there's a million other ways they could, they could handle it. So you, you can't get precious about if you put a shot into a screenplay to expect that people are going to do it exactly the way you wrote it. But at the same time, I don't think you should be afraid to do it. We're, we're writing in film language. You can write a montage. You can write the light changes on his face. You know, you can indicate certain effects and whether or not the director wants to choose it is, is up to them. But I don't think you should limit yourself, uh, particularly from directing on the page. I think you should be careful about directing every shot on the page because that seems a little arrogant and intrusive, probably distracting from your writing. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm okay with some direction on a page. What's your favorite part of the writing process? You know, there's characters, there's dialogue, there's descriptions, there's backstory. We can go on all day, the various elements. Yeah. What's your favorite? What do you enjoy doing the most? You know, I love all of it. I think my favorite part of the process is when you have been writing for a good 40 minutes or so and you just fall into the zone, when you just that you start to hear the characters saying things to each other that you didn't think of, it just sort of comes out of your brain of the reality of the moment. Or you're writing 
an action sequence and suddenly you're just in it and things start happening and something comes flying in from off screen and you're like, oh my God, where did that come from? That is the most magical part of the process for me. You know, writers typically talk about how hard it is to write and it is hard and it's difficult and it's heartbreaking. But at the same time, I do find a great love of just, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's a quiet dialogue exchange and it just suddenly sings and you and your character suddenly says something that just shocks you and nails the moment. That's what I love. It's like doing improv as an actor and you're up on stage and somebody hits you with something and you turn around with just the perfect line and you don't know where it came from. It's not something you thought of. It just happened. And I find that that happens on the page as well. If you can get into the zone, be alone in a locked room for, for a few hours and and really, eventually, your brain just takes over in a way that, that is um, very, very satisfying and, and very stunning. And again, not all that work is going to look great when you look back at it two weeks later, but, but mostly it will. So that's my favorite part. I think it's taboo for writers to say that they enjoy writing. You know, everybody <laughs> hates that, and I think other writers start to come gunning for them. But I really do. I really, I really love it. I, I find this sort of, you know, this stream of gasoline coming out of my fingers and, and it just ignites and I'm very, very excited. So you finally finish your script and you sit there and you look at it and you say, that's a great script. I'm assuming you're doing multiple, multiple revisions. Yeah. I don't think any of my scripts are even approach greatness until somewhere between the fifth and eighth draft. It, it typically takes for me to get to be happy with the script. And, you know, that may be too long uh, because I love the editing process as well. That That's where you create great writing. You know, nobody, and this is extremely important for other screenwriters to hear, nobody writes a perfect script off the first draft. I mean, may, you know, maybe Tarantino, when he wrote <laughs> Reservoir Dogs, maybe it came out perfectly. I don't know. But that is just not how it works for the great percentage of us. You have to you have to write it. So the first draft, you write the first draft, and this is typically how I do it, schedule permitting. And I put it away for at least two weeks. Ignore it. Don't think about it. Let it go. And then read it again fresh as an editor and as a harsh editor and say, okay, what needs to go? What needs to change? And then dig into it and allow nothing to be sacred you know, allow yourself to really look at every word, every phrase. Is it working? Is it bringing up problems? Is it saying something that takes the audience in the wrong direction? So that's the process between first and second drafts for me. Hey, everyone. We just wanted to take a quick second to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support. The Writer Experience Podcast has been self-funded from the beginning. So whether you're an aspiring writer who has taken inspiration from the podcast or just enjoy hearing from professional writers, please donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash writer experience. You can also go to our website, writerexperience.com and click the Patreon button. Thank you again. We really appreciate your support. And now back to the show. And at what point do you decide, okay, this script is ready to rock. And who's approving that? Is it the executive producer who's saying, okay, we can green light this. We're going to shoot this film as the script. <laughs> you know, I, I, it depends on the process. Um, very often I'm brought in before anybody. So there's no, there's no other creative, you know, creative entity on board except for me in the studio. So typically it will be, you know, the head of the studio who says, okay, we're ready to take this out to directors. So that happens a lot. And and then what happens usually is the director comes on board, brings his own screenwriter, and you, you get fired. Um, <laughs> but if that doesn't happen, then, then it goes into the hands, or they'll take it to a big producer. And then the big producer will say, okay, but we need to do more passes. Everybody wants to do more passes. Everybody wants to put their own stamp on it, to apply their own rules of filmmaking to it. And that's part of the process. The big producer gets to a point where they're satisfied, then they try to attach a director. And again, you go through it again. What's the relationship between being a screenwriter who's not directing a film and working with the director? What does that relationship look like? 
for me, I am of the firm belief, and I would, I think most directors would agree that the director's word is final, that they have final say over what's going to happen. That's above producers. That's above studio. Everybody will push to have their ideas and they'll come to the, the screenwriter to, you know, pressure them to get their own ideas in. But I believe that in the end, the director is responsible for the final course of the film. And if we disagree over any element, I'll push as hard as I can and, and really try to hammer my point home why I think it needs to be a certain way. But in the end, if they say, no, it's got to be this way, just do it, then I'll do it and I'll make it, you know, the best I can. And that's hard. That's, a, that's hard from an ego standpoint. You know, you, you believe you're right. You believe you know what you're doing. But sometimes, you know, you just got to go, well, the director's got a lot of other responsibilities, too, between editing, color, actors, music, what have you. And, and you have to rely on them to, to dictate the course. And what's the role of a screenwriter on set? It's been said that sometimes screenwriters don't always get the love that they deserve on a set, so to speak. Um, what's, the, what's that look like? Are you involved? Are they evolving the script as they go? And are they involving you in that process? Or does it mostly kind of end when the production begins? It typically ends when the production begins. The studio does not want the screenwriter on set because every change you make costs money. So, but some directors want to change the scripts and they should, you know, as new ideas pop up, as, as new elements are, are introduced into the, the shooting, you know, you find some great location. You say, oh, I need to work this into the film. You know, it's, I think it's better for the director to have the writer on set or the director will just make the changes themselves. But the studio does not want that. So when I was on set for X-Men, you know, there was a very real sense that the studio wished I would be, you know, dead or fired. <laughs> But the, you know, fortunately, the director did not allow that to happen. And he wanted me there to bounce ideas, to, you know, come up with new drafts of scenes, to suggest lines to the actors while we were sitting on set. And that's what I did. And that was an amazing and rare experience. In fact, I think the only other time that I've seen a movie through, been on set for every bit of a movie as a screenwriter was when I was directing it. Is there one uh, day on set looking back in your career that is the most memorable? Well, there's, a, there's been a lot of memorable <laughs> days. It, it, it depends on what you mean. I mean, there were, yeah, so there was a day when we shot the first X-Men where we were introducing Wolverine in the cage match in, in the bar in Alaska. You know, I don't know if you've oh, seen yeah. it recently or, yep. or recall. But we needed to introduce Wolverine's claws to the audience. And I sat at the bar stool where Wolverine was going to be. And I said, what if the guy comes up behind him and threatens him and then pulls a knife on him? Rogue calls out, says, look out. Wolverine spins around, blocks the knife, puts the guy up against the pole extends two claws on either ends of his throat, and then the third claw, which is going to impale him, pokes out a little bit to let him know what's about to happen. Then I was like, then, you know, he's got him, we've got this awesome introduction to the claws, and then a shotgun barrel creeps into frame over Wolverine's ear, and the bartender has come up and says, get out of my bar, freak. And we think that's it. You know, we think, okay, well, he's going to let him go. And Wolverine instead, he snarls, he snaps his other hand back, the other set of claws come out, slice the shotgun into three pieces, and he holds the other set of claws out at the bartender's throat. And then we'll cut wide, and we'll just see him with one set of claws against one guy's throat, the other set of claws wide against the other guy's throat, and that'll be your big introduction to Wolverine's claws. And I just did it. I acted it out. So I was standing there in that <laughs> pose. and. Brian was like that. Yeah, great. And they shot it. And so, you know, when I see that scene, it, it's pretty cool. I can remember sitting in that freezing bar set in, in Toronto in the winter and, uh, and standing there in that pose. And then it became this iconic moment. So I'd say that was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. You actually started to talk about my next question, which is, what it's like seeing your words on the screen. 
how often is it verbatim? Are you often saying, oh, that's not what I intended? Like, what's the percentages? 50-50 or? It depends on the film. Well, X-Men, you know, I was there for everything. Um, X2, I was not on set. So I would say that that um, the percentage of my work coming out that I was happy with, I mean, <laughs> I was pretty. If it ends up being what I intended, and and it's a and it's an A list film crew and actors, it's usually pretty good. But sometimes you know they'll change a line, and you didn't know they were going to change it. You're like, well, now that ruins the whole point of the scene, and, right. and that can be very frustrating. You know, when I worked on Watchmen, for example, a lot of that was adapted straight from the book, but there were a lot of little moments that I put in. So watching the movie, I didn't know. Again, I wasn't. I visited the set, but I wasn't there for every day of shooting. So it was kind of cool to see the moments that I had put in the little there's little Easter eggs um, that I put into uh, to films sort of references to my life. Like in X-Men 2, Magneto is trapped in this plastic prison and he's got this this abusive guard and his last name is Lario. And this was a guy that I knew in high school who I just hated. So my my high school girlfriend went to see the movie and she said, "Oh my god, as soon as I heard the guard's name was Lorio, I knew he was going to die some horrible death." <laughs> and uh and he did. And so that was very satisfying. And um yeah, it's cool. It's it's you know, it's a unique feeling. There's nothing like it to to go to a movie theater anywhere in the world and then hear a line of dialogue that you wrote being said by some amazing actor like Ian McKellen or Patrick Stewart, and then it gets a laugh or, or, or shock somebody, you know, you hear the audience audibly react is a unique feeling, you know, it's unique to screenwriters and it's very, very cool. And then, you know, sometimes you'll be like, Oh my God, they didn't say that line, right? Like that was not the intention of the line and it's horrible. And it just stabs you in the heart. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's an emotional roller coaster. So the film comes out, and then you're like, wow, now I need another job as a writer. Yeah. Um, oh, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> the, film, the film starts to shoot, and you're like, okay. Ah, okay. By the time, nice. If you, if you waited to get another job by the time the film comes out, <laughs> you're already broke. There it is. That was a trick question. So when you are ready to get the next job, what does that look like? I know, obviously, your first gig, as you said, was a bit, I don't want to say circumstantial, but it was by no, kis it's kismet. It's yeah. So um, how do you get your next gig? Are you, I assume you maybe got an agent out of that, and now once you get an agent, they're helping you to get these jobs, or is it through people you know? Can be. Um, yeah, I mean, the typical experience is, I mean, if you're a working writer, if, if, if you've had a film come out um, at whatever level, then typically what happens is your agents, uh, there's a few things they can do. They send you what's called the open writing assignments, which is a list of all the films and or TV shows that the studios are developing. And you can say, oh, they're doing this such and such book. I read that book. I love that. I want a meeting. And you'll set up a meeting and go in and talk about it. Or they'll send you on a ton of general meetings with uh, executives around town. And those are more general, uh, which is why they call them that. And you sit down and you discuss what the studio is doing. You discuss some of the titles that they're working on. You discuss some of the things that you love. Sometimes you just describe old stories or books that you love, and that'll spark ideas. You know, they'll go, oh, you love samurai stories. Oh, you know what? We're, we just got the rights to, you know, 100 Samurai or, or whatever. And, um, you know, would you be interested in taking a look at the material? And typically all of these jobs come out of You've had lunch with an executive or you've had a meeting with an executive or a producer or whomever who says, oh, you know, it might be interesting if you took a look at this and then you give them your thoughts, go back and forth. If everybody seems excited about the ideas, you know, maybe you make a deal. It's as easy as that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how does writing an original screenplay differ than writing for an established property like an x-men or like a watchman well writing an original screenplay is very very difficult it's di not difficult to do it is difficult to do but it's it's difficult to get made especially today 
you know, today the focus is so much on IP, intellectual property. So comic books, video games, books, anything that's already been a proven commodity, they want to develop. Anything that's new, particularly if you write in the sci-fi or fantasy genre, it's very, it's a very high bar to be able to get it made. It happens. You know, you get a cool movie like Looper or something. I don't know if that was based on anything, but that seemed like a cool original yeah. concept. You know, with X-Men or Watchmen, you know, those are two different things. X-Men, first of all, I adapted it from 40 years of comic books and, and really pulled elements from all sorts of different stories and things. And that was difficult to get made because comic book movies were not really an accepted thing yet. The studio was very, very nervous. Watchmen was more difficult to set up by far because that was one story that I wanted to adapt directly. It was so good, beat for beat and word for word, that I just wanted to make that book directly into a movie, which is essentially what we did. But it was so dark and so twisted that, you know, you have to convince somebody to give you a hundred, more than a hundred million dollars to make a very dark superhero movie where somebody, you know, there's an attempted rape, there's the murder of a pregnant woman. I mean, there is some brutal, very dark stuff going on in there. And yet the story is so amazing and, and illuminating towards human nature that I felt that it had to be made. But it took us nine years and four different studios, wow. four different directors before Zack Snyder came on board and, and Warner's gave him the money to make the movie. So, yeah, I mean, each one is an ordeal. Not to scare people off, this is a great job, but it is it is a lot more exhausting than, than you would imagine, than you could possibly imagine before you come into it. You mentioned that you recently wrote for television. Obviously, you wrote for films as well. What's the difference coming on to writing for television? Obviously, you're working in a writer's room. Obviously, there are a lot of different voices in that room. What's your voice? Are you the loud one? Are you the quiet one? <laughs> Tell us about that I experience. Am not, I am not the quiet one. <laughs> uh, my experience was weird. Uh, it was unique because I kind of came in as a well-known screenwriter. And I think the more established television writers looked at me with great suspicion. And the younger writers were all fans. So that caused a bit of awkwardness to begin with. But I was very, very lucky. The writer's room I was in was super nice and super collaborative. And I figured out how to fit in you know at first it was all about they all wanted you know particularly the younger writers wanted to hear stories you know hollywood stories and big movie stories and things like that and and that you know kind of put a spotlight on me that was uncomfortable i made it difficult with the you know the more experienced writers who had worked their way up in television and and um were right to look askance at at somebody who who was coming into it fresh but I tried to, you know, sublimate my ego as much as possible and just say, you know, let's just write the best ideas possible. And I found out that, you know, I found out some of the things that I am good at, which is very good with um, character driven set pieces, you know, illustrating character through action, coming up with original action. Um, I was good with, you know, I fit into the process and I, I managed to, to make it work. I think I come at storytelling from a, a more plot-driven direction and then let the characters discover themselves along the way, whereas TV tends to be build the characters first and then come up with action to test them. So that was a little different, but it all worked in the end. I think we, we all found the same voice to, to create the show, hopefully. Every medium has its strengths and weaknesses. Obviously, you worked on two movies that were adapted from comic books or inspired by comic books. Regarding the structure of a comic book, you said you were a reader of those. How would you translate the strength of a comic book's format versus a screenplay's format? What are the pros and cons to each? Well, it depends on the comic book. Um, I think that, like Watchmen, to me, Watchmen was essentially a brilliantly storyboarded script it, it was wasn't a typical three-act structure it was more of a five-act structure if, if not a seven-act structure so that to me was really written like a, a, a huge epic film comic books like like the x-men comic books are more 
uh, episodic. Like they're more, you know, they they were usually back in the day, anyways. They were usually about thirty, forty pages. So they were essentially like television episodes. You know, they they a lot of times the stories would be continued uh, over two, three, four different issues, and and that would be like an extended television story. But in the end, storytelling is storytelling. You know, you start off with a situation, you have you drop your characters into it, you have a beginning, you have a middle, you have an end. And like I say, that that ending can come after 30 pages, it can come after two episodes or two issues, three issues, four issues, but in, in the end, the course of a story is the course of a story if it's well written. So that's that's kind of what I get out of it if that's satisfying in any way. So you've written um some successful screenplays for some major films. What's the end game for you? And Based on your experience writing TV and the state of TV being bigger than ever, do you foresee yourself kind of breaking more into that, or do you prefer to stay more in the motion picture realm? I want to work, you know. <laughs> I, I don't really, you know, my long-term goal right now would be, I mean, right now, I, I just... I have a couple of movie projects I'm very, very excited about. I have a couple of television projects that I'm very excited about. In the end, my end goal would be I'd like to do what J.J. Abrams did, as would everybody. Not everybody wants that kind of pressure, but I do. And so for TV, what I'd like to do is I'd like to set up a show that is in my genre, sci-fi, fantasy, or horror, that gives me the opportunity to do really cool, original set pieces and characters and and what have you, and then start directing those, you know, a few episodes per season, build up my cred as a director, and uh, and eventually, you know, direct Star Wars. That That's that's my goal. Wow. We'll see how close I get. And I feel like they're making a lot of content these days, so maybe there's an opportunity there. Yeah, there's a huge amount of content, and it's, it's you know, it's really a golden age for, for content creators and, and Actually, I think they're kind of making too much content. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that pretty soon they'll be paying us a dollar fifty to, to do a television show, but because there's so many. But, um, but there really is the opportunity to do groundbreaking work right now, and uh, and so that's my goal. I'm collecting, and I have collected. I mean, pro- right now I have probably eight to ten active projects that I think are really unique and cool that I picked up from various, you know, comic book properties or other writers or or my or I came up with myself. And so trying to set them up and, and, um, if, you know, if I set up my own series as a showrunner, I'll say, I want to direct at least two episodes per season, put that into my contract and all of that will go towards my long-term goal. Love it. Last question before we move on to some rapid fire questions at the end, uh, what is one piece of advice or learning from your career that you would like to pass along to any aspiring writers out there? The thing I did not realize, this is, this is a very easy question for me. I, this is above all. The one element I did not realize was if you are going to survive as a working screenwriter, the sheer amount of work that you will do that never gets seen, the number of projects you write that just don't go, get thrown in the trash, the, the amount I, I've written, I feel like I've written at least as many films, TV shows as Stephen King has written books. And yet all of his books are made and people <laughs> get to enjoy them. Maybe eight to 10% of what I've written has made it to the screen, been seen by anybody. And that's not a bad ratio. You know, my agents are like, well, look, eight to 10%, that's huge. But it's so grueling and soul-killing to see script after script after script just tossed. And you just have to deal with it. You have to live with it, and you have to keep going back to work with the same level of fire and commitment, or you won't survive. And so my piece of advice is for anybody who's screenwriting, and they've written one script, and they think my whole career hinges on this, that's a recipe for failure. You need to write your first script, write your second script, write your third script, go back, re-edit your first, second, and third scripts, and then and just keep doing it. And if you cannot produce that level of output 
um, it will be very difficult for you to survive once you find success. Because if you find success, if you're fortunate enough to do so, and I hope you do, you are going to hit the ground running and you are suddenly going to be working on five different things at once and maybe one of them will get made. That's the reality. Would you say those ghosts of Scripps past live on anyway in the writing you do now? Would you say that you repurpose some of those ideas and those scenes later? You know, it's interesting. I always thought I would. I always thought, well, at least I've got all these amazing sequences and things and I can just put them into new scripts. But I never do that. I, I, what, I, what happens is my writing develops because I've written those scenes and then any new sequences I write are informed by the experiences I've had. But it never, I've never run into a situation where it felt natural to say, like I've got this scene in uh, my Black Widow script from back in the day where she confronts, she's been betrayed by another assassin and there's just, there's sort of a gunfight between three different assassins in this one house that I loved. And I, I just really felt it was, I wanted David Bowie to play the, the betrayer assassin and that's how I saw it. And it's just this, I loved the sequence. Uh, personally. And then I thought, oh, I'll just put it into something else. I've never run into a situation where, you know, I had a female assassin who was betrayed by an elder mentor assassin, and then a third assassin was coming. It just never came up. So it's very hard to repurpose them. But like I say, I think your writing develops and changes for each thing that you write, and, and that informs future development. So no, a lot of those scenes just disappear. They're just gone. And that happens to the greatest writers and there's all these amazing screenplays that are just gone and the studios won't pick them up because they're like well if they didn't get produced once they're probably not good and that's not true it's just nobody wants to take on some other executives failed attempt on a lighter note cue the sound effects <laughs> it's time for what we like to call a series of seemingly random questions are you down i'm down amazing <laughs> let's rock and roll the first question, if you could take any writer to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? Oh, my God. Any writer? Well, I guess it would have to be Stephen King. I mean, that's where I learned how to write. That's what sparked my love of writing when I was a kid. And I think just listening to him talk, I guess I would take him to a nice steak restaurant. Uh, you know, the man's been wealthy for quite some time, so I want to make sure that he, uh, I, you know, a guy like Stephen King would probably be fine with, you know, Dodger dogs and whatnot because he's <laughs> cool. But I think I'd, I'd probably take him to, uh, you know, Musso and Frank's or Dan Tana's or one of the great old Hollywood steak houses to really try to ply the stories out of him and, and um, listen to him talk about storytelling. That would be a dream. I love it. The next seemingly random question, we read that an Entertainment Weekly article once quoted Alan Moore as saying, David Hayter's screenplay was as close as I could imagine as anyone getting to a film version of Watchmen. Is that true? And uh, what are your thoughts on that? That is true. Um, I think he's first said it in Empire Magazine in, in Britain. I got Alan Moore, somebody gave me Alan Moore's home number when I was working on the movie, and I called him. And I said, uh, I said, Alan, you know, I'm working on this movie of your masterpiece, and I want to let you know how much I love it, how much respect uh, I, I have in approaching this material. And I wanted to let you know that if there's any, I know you're not big on Hollywood, but I, if there's any level of involvement you want, um, you know, I would be honored. And he said, uh, he was so gracious, and he said, you know, oh, no, David, you know, the the book is my story and the movie's your story. And, and, uh, uh, but if I can ever give you any advice, let me know. And so, uh, and so I did, as I was writing the thing, I, I would call him and ask him questions and he was so lovely. And then I sent him the script at the end and then he came out with this quote and it was so amazing. You know, I was just so touched and the fan community couldn't believe it. You know, he doesn't like Hollywood, but he respects other writers. And, and I think he respected the fact that I respected him and still do immensely. But the funny part of that is you left off the end of the quote, uh, which is, um, I believe it's David Hayter's script is the closest to a film adaptation that there will ever be of Watchmen 
that said, I shan't be seeing the movie. Uh, <laughs> I see that. Wow. Which I appreciate. That's crazy. Because he's awesome. Hilarious. Now, I'm adding this question in because I just thought of it off the top. Are you involved or would you want to no. be involved? You know what I'm going to say for the, the new oh, Yeah. Yeah, so I'm sorry, I jumped. I jumped. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Um, you knew exactly what I was going to say. Uh, Watchmen series being yeah. made for at HBO. Um, I'm not involved. Would I have wanted to be involved? Sure. I, I, I love the well. I love the world of the Watchmen, but I. What makes Watchmen different from X Men is that Watchmen is brilliant because of that core story, not just the characters, not just the world. It's this amazing clockwork story that. I would feel very intimidated trying to outdo or trying to top or even trying to replicate in any way. So, you know, if they'd have called me to do it, I'd have been like, yeah, hell yeah, let's, let's, let's take it on. But I'd have been nervous to do so. As it is, fortunately, it didn't come up because they didn't ask me. Next question. What's one thing about your life or career that nobody knows? What is one thing about my life or career that nobody knows? I don't know. You know, I, I've done so many interviews and things. I think, <laughs> they, know, I think they know everything. Um, I don't think because I'm so breezy and, and, you know, I really do enjoy what I do. I don't think they have any sense of how hard it is and how, how much of a slog it is just developing project after project and then some of them go and some of them don't uh, you know the, the it's it's uh the reality of it is um is hard you know it, it it really is and i guess people know that empirically but um but it's impossible to know until you until you're in it and i know that sounds like a bit of a bummer of an answer because i i really do love it and i do uh i love this life but um, but it is not for the faint of heart. You know, you really have to keep your spirits up, or it'll crush you. So I'm, you know, it's so funny when people interview <laughs> as a voice actor. I'm so funny and I'm so <laughs> charming, and everybody loves it, and it's a laugh riot. When you interview me as a writer, it's that's a serious business, and it's difficult to um, to get past that. So I, I apologize if any of this was a downer. <laughs> you actually answered my next question, which was, is the life of a writer glamorous? Art moments. Um, you know, I've been to the Cannes Film Festival, and I've been I've been all around the world. I, I fly to movie studios, and they flew me to Prague to um, check out the movie studios there while they were shooting Hellboy. So I went to dinner with Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro and all those folks in Prague. I mean, you know, you get these incredible. I went. I scouted a, a ski hill in Transylvania once. You get to go. Every now and again, your movie gets made and you go to your premiere. I've had two premieres at the Chinese theater, like the huge, huge movie premieres. Right. And that's pretty special. So, yeah, there's lots of elements that are glamorous. Or you get to hang out on a movie set and, and tell Halle Berry a joke. And she, you know, laughs and claps you on the back. And you're like, this is pretty good, you know. So um, there's a lot of amazing experiences. I once flew on the Warner Brothers private jet to go up to Vancouver to ask Charlize Theron if she would be Jean Grey in the, in the oh, X-Men wow. movies. So, you know, and, and on the way, Richard Donner, the director of Superman and Lethal Weapon and The Omen, this legendary director, it was just, it was me, uh, Brian Singer, Richard Donner, and his wife, Lauren. And so we sat and had lunch on the plane, on the private jet with the silverware and, and whatnot. As Richard Donner told me stories about shooting Lethal Weapon, about shooting Superman, that was mind-blowingly glamorous. So, uh, yeah, it can be. Um, but if that's what you're getting into it for, you know, those times are, are they happen, but they're rare. And, uh, and you, you've got to go through a lot of stuff to get to them. But, um, but yeah, it can totally be glamorous. Second to last question, writer's block. You haven't mentioned it, so to speak. What are your remedies uh, and your experience with it? I don't acknowledge it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, uh, but I don't, as a working screenwriter, I don't have time to say I can't get this done. I I'm on deadlines all the time. The way I get through it is there's a brilliant book by a woman named Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way, 
And she advises doing a thing called morning pages, which is three handwritten pages of just anything that's on your mind before you start writing. And if you are blocked, it is an extremely valuable way of just writing out the problem that you have and figuring out what you want to do with it. You have no idea how to solve it. You just keep writing down why it's frustrating you, what you're trying to get at. You can just bitch about why you know, <sighs> you're not there. It doesn't matter. But I guarantee you, by a page and a half of just throwing out all that stuff that's blocking you, your brain will start to kick in and it'll go, what about this? What if you tried this? And it's the most amazing, transformative thing I've ever found as a writer, as a creative person, ever. So, um, so that's how I deal with it. If you are stuck, write out by hand three pages of just unloading your brain, and your brain will, will start to fill in the empty spaces by itself. And it's remarkable. So try that. Wow. The last question, the most important question, brace yourself. Did I'm you, sitting down. Did you have fun today? <laughs> I did have fun today. I'm kind of worried that I, I, I bummed everybody out. Um, but you know what? If you can't handle that, you can't be a writer. So, <laughs> so yes, I did have a, I had an enormous amount of fun. And thank you. Your questions were, were very insightful and, and well-informed. And yeah, I had a blast. As did we. Thank you so much. Um, did you want to shout anything out? Maybe the, you know, the show that's coming out or your nun or... Yeah, well, okay, so here are the things I have at the moment that I can that I can plug. Okay. Uh, so at the end of the year, watch Warrior Nun on Netflix. It's got nuns, it's got warriors, it's got nuns who are warriors. <laughs> it's got it all, and uh, it's a pretty, it should be an awesome, kick-ass, girl-power-filled series that I'm very excited about. Uh, as an actor, I am playing the pirate Creamy Zeus, who is a pirate who has the powers of cream on the show Hot Streets uh, oh, wow. in the season two uh, premiere episode. And on The Flash, I'm the voice of King Shark, and I finally get to fight Gorilla Grodd. So that will be an epic, epic battle. We'll have to have you back on to talk voice acting. We haven't had a voice actor on before, and that's a whole nother thing. Well, it would be my pleasure. Well, we'll let you go. Thank you for taking the time. It was not a bummer. I had a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, so thanks well, again. Thank you so much for having me. And you as well, David. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.